Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Chit Heads. My guest today is Rupert Sheldrake. Rupert is a biologist and author of more than 85 technical papers and eight books, including Science and Spiritual Practices, and the co-author of six books. He was a fellow of Clare College at Cambridge University, a research fellow of the Royal Society, and a Frank No Fellow at Harvard. He worked in India as principal plant physiologist at the International Crops Research Institute and also lived for two years in the Benedictine ashram of Father Bede Griffiths in Tamil Nadu. From 2005 to 2010, he was director of the Parrot Warwick Project for the study of unexplained human and animal abilities, funded from Trinity College, Cambridge. He is a fellow of the Institute of Noetic Sciences and of Schumacher College in Devon, England. He lives in London and is married to Jill Purse, with whom he has two sons. So with that, hello, Rupert. Thanks so much for joining me today. So it's a pleasure to chat with you, Rupert. I've really had um, a great uh, time preparing for this interview. I really respect the work that you're doing. And over the last few days as I've been preparing, I've gone into quite a rabbit hole listening into the uh, listening to the Science Set Free podcast um, uh, that you partner with um, um, uh, Mark Vernon, which who is also an interesting thinker. And you really go into a lot of really fascinating conversations as they relate to the question of science and spirituality. So I want to, you know, talk about your latest book today, The Science of Spiritual Practices. But as a way of entering into that conversation, I'd like to kind of back up and and talk about um, the research uh, around your um, book, The Science Delusion. But actually, before we get into that conversation, I'd just love to hear a little bit about your own story and what has led you to the work that you do. Well, that could be a very long story, of course. Sure. Uh, basically, um, I started out as a scientist because I've always been very interested in animals and plants. Uh, so biology was my passion as a child, and that's why I studied it. Um, I started out with a fairly conventional Christian upbringing, which I rejected and became a kind of scientific atheist. Yeah. That was part of the package deal of science, at least it's how it seemed to me at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, then, um, while I was still an undergraduate at Cambridge, I began to feel that the mechanistic theory of life was much too limited, that there's much more to life than molecular mechanisms and um, inanimate machinery. Um, and so I began to uh, look for a more holistic way of doing science and biology in particular. And that's why I took a year off to study philosophy and history of science at Harvard mm-hmm. before going back and doing a PhD at Cambridge. I was worked, it worked perfectly well for me to do regular science. I was good at it. And, um, but as time went on, I just got more and more feeling we need more than this. I got interested in the idea of morphogenetic fields, form-shaping fields in biology. Um, then wrestling with the problem of how they're inherited, um, I came up with the idea of morphic resonance, a kind of memory in nature. Um, And I realized that this was not going to go over too well in the scientific world in England. Um, I decided to step back for a bit and think about it. I couldn't publish it till I was sure of my ground. I knew that it would be very controversial. Um, So I then spent um, years in India, I worked at an agricultural institute for more than five years, 
working on crop improvement. And then two years in the ashram of Father Bede Griffiths, which is where I actually wrote my first book, A New Science of Life, which brings out the idea of morphic resonance. Since then, I've been um, engaged in research on morphic resonance, holistic science, unexplained phenomena, uh, trying to broaden out the scientific worldview. Um, I found that there are many scientists who'd love to have a broader kind of science, but there's an overwhelming orthodoxy of reductive materialism. Mm -hmm. Those scientists are afraid to uh, declare themselves opposed to it, at least in public. You know, they want to keep their jobs and their grants, even though an awful lot don't actually believe it. Um, and so I've written a whole series of books. I've, um, while I was in India, I was drawn back to a Christian path. And Father Bede's ashram was perfect for me because it combined yoga, meditation, Christian liturgy, Tamil devotional singing, um, you know, many um, Hindu-type practices um, combined with Christian ones. And that, that, for me, was a kind of marriage of East and West that was just suited me perfectly. Um, I've then gone on with a series of explorations of more spiritual questions, uh, partly through dialogues with Terence McKenna, Ralph Abraham. I did a whole series with them with other people like Mark Vernon, with Bishop Mark Andrus, the Bishop of California at Grace Cathedral in San Francisco, with Matthew Fox, who's a theologian. Um, in my book, The Science Delusion, Science Set Free in the US, um, I discussed the dogmas of science and how uh, science needs to move on beyond them. And a lot of my work is um, about trying to move the sciences on beyond this dogmatic worldview, and also open up whole areas of dialogue between science and spirituality. Hence my recent book on science and spiritual practices. Yes. Well, before we get into the some of the arguments and, and some of the assumptions that, that you argue are foundational to materialist science, I want to back up a little bit to something you said, because it aligns a little bit and very much resonates with my own kind of trajectory, which was that I was raised in a kind of very um, Christian... Um, Protestant family lost my faith, and then really with through an engagement with Indian philosophy have uh, have developed a kind of more nuanced understanding so i 'm curious about that from your perspective, like in what way did an engagement with the Indian tradition help you to return to Christianity with a more kind of nuanced lens I think by realizing that um, for ordinary Hindus, not western converts to Hinduism, as it were, but for Indian Hindus, um, the goal of spiritual practice is to escape from the wheels of reincarnation. And it's a personal goal. It's a kind of vertical takeoff route. You know, you should practice so you can get beyond all this endless suffering and samsara. Mm -hmm. um, when I discussed with some of my Hindu colleagues, um, at work when I was working in an agricultural institute, um, what we were doing, they said to me, you know, why do you do this work? And I said, because I'm help, trying to help poor people, you know, grow better crops and, and help poor farmers and so on, which I was. I mean, I wanted to do this in a spirit of helping others. Um, they were doing it because they wanted a good career with good pay and pension. Um, and then they said, one of them in particular, who was a Brahmin and a sincere devout Hindu, 
I said, but their problem, they're poor. That is not your problem. That is their problem. It is their karma. That is not your problem. Your, your problem is to achieve liberation, you see. And I realized, actually, a deep down in the Hindu thing, it's not about helping other people. That's why the caste system has been so predominant in India. And I realized that so much about my own way of thinking, and indeed so much about secular humanism, which is what many atheists adopt, is actually based on a kind of Christian moral value system, which yeah. is in this together. Helping others is a key part of the spiritual life. But it isn't, I mean, modern Hindus have introduced it under the influence of Western missionaries, but um, it's not really deeply embedded in the Hindu system. It's a different approach to life. So I realized I was much more Christian than I thought. Um, and I also realized that to be a Hindu, basically, you have to be Indian, the holy places of India, the temples, the, uh, the holy rivers and all that. And I, however hard I tried, I couldn't be because I'm English. And I should be a more better off relating to the holy places of England, which are primarily Christian, and English pilgrimages, which are mainly about Christian sites, and English festivals, which are, again, mainly Christian and based on European seasons and that sort of thing. It will be uh, in accordance with my own hypothesis of morphic resonance. Um, the idea of, you know, doing, um, being part of a tradition, being part of the, the whole ancestral memory, unconscious memory, um, seemed important. And so I took seriously again the Christian tradition and, and found myself um, really getting to know it and appreciate it more. But because Father Bede also accepted many of the insights of the Upanishads and of yoga and so on, uh, I didn't see it as either or. You know, you have to project everything in every other tradition. I saw it as accepting what one can learn from all traditions and yet being rooted in one's own. And that was more or less how Father Bede was. Yeah. Well, it seems like, you know, uh, and I'm wondering what you think about this kind of pattern of many people in the West sort of um, seeing it as as an either-or situation where they have to kind of reject their Christianity and then go to the, you know, the the mythical East where the the treasures of spirituality still exist because in some sense they feel like their own tradition has been desacralized by the Christian church. And so I'm wondering if you think a part of that return or the, the ability to kind of regain uh, Christianity in our culture involves a, a, rem a remembering of the esoteric essence of it and, and a kind of focus more on, on the Christian mystics rather than the kind of orthodoxies of the contemporary church. Oh, definitely. I mean, that's why I've written uh, this book on science and spiritual practices. I think spiritual practices, one of them is being meditation are essential. Um, and uh, I think that you see the one of the other things I'm keen on that I write about in the book is pilgrimage. Yeah, something I came came to appreciate through living in India. Yeah. But I mean, just yesterday, for example, with a group of about 30 or 40 people, uh, we went on a wonderful pilgrimage just here in London, starting uh, at the Tower of London, an old church called All Hallows by the Tower. Uh, through about 10 different sacred sites, mainly Christian, um, including stopping in at a church called St. Magnus the Martyr, where they were celebrating candle mass and 
there was chanting and incense. It was wonderful. And then ending at Choral Evensong in Westminster Abbey, a very beautiful choral service. Uh, and finally visiting the shrine of St. Edward the Confessor behind the high altar, which is an ancient holy place, the power spot of England, really, mm. of the government mm. of England, um, of royal power. And uh, this was a, a wonderful connection with the holy places of London, the tradition, liturgical tradition, the wonderful singing, the church music, um, the beauty of an ancient building, a cathedral and a holy place and a pilgrimage. For me, this was um, not something that was primarily about doctrine or dogma. It was celebration of festivals, holy places, liturgy, beautiful music, um, and the archetype of pilgrimage. And all of that is thoroughly within the Christian tradition, although it's paralleled in all other traditions. Mm. Now, what characterizes the the kind of spirit of pilgrimage? Like, how does how does pilgrimage differ from, say, just traveling to sacred sites? Well, first of all, when you go on a pilgrimage, you go with an intention, and usually you go for an intention asking for something, healing, or giving thanks for something. Um, or asking for blessings or inspirations. You go with an intention. You go on a journey to a holy place, which is a connection between heaven and earth. Mm-hmm. And most holy places have tires, spires, or Hindu temples have those big kind of flagpole things, or they have great corporams, which and stretch up into the sky um, and literally connect the heaven and the earth. They're actually lightning conductors, all these things. They actually draw lightning down into the holy place. Um, so you go with an intention, and um, when you get there, um, you make an offering, you light a candle or say a prayer. Um, and so the journey has an intention, and that makes it different from just traveling somewhere or just going for a walk. And it also makes it very different from going as a tourist, because um, I think that tourism is a form of frustrated pilgrimage. I think that um, tourism, was, tourism was invented by the British after pilgrimage was suppressed at the Protestant Reformation. Um, and it involved, tourism involves going to ancient holy places like cathedrals, temples, you know, shrines, um, places in India, Mount Kailash, etc. Um, involves going to holy places, but when you get there, you can't kneel down and say a prayer or light a candle or do a puja or make an offering because you've gone there pretending to be a modern, enlightened, rational, intellectual person whose primary interest is art history. Yeah. And Now, in fact, most tourists aren't very interested in art history at all. <laughs> it, it'd be much better off if they could make an offering or do a puja or say a prayer and, and ask for blessings. And then, um, again, if you're a pilgrim and you have blessings from that place, you can share them when you get back home. Tourists can't share blessings they haven't had. Um, all they can share is photographs, which yeah. is what they take when they're there. And you know, It's not that interesting to have to share people's holiday photos. Um, whereas I love it if people go on a pilgrimage and share something with the blessings, holy water or prasad or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I experienced that when I was in India last year, you know, having, you know, over the years been quite kind of entrenched in more or less Hindu traditions. And I, there, there was definitely a, a very 
uh, a deep sense of difference between what I was there to do and experience versus what so many other Westerners were were there to experience as just, you know, people touring around who really didn't know anything about the culture. But there was a kind of distance between them that I think I, you know, was lucky enough not to feel. I felt much more intimate with what I was experiencing than, than you know, someone who perhaps has no... Um, has no kind of intention behind it be beyond, like you say, sort of, um, I don't know, um, uh, collecting, you know, uh, pictures of and and collecting sort of pins in the, the world map, so to speak. Yes, it seems rather pointless. It's also eco-hostile. Right. Uh, so um, I, I, I think pilgrimage, I mean, I think one of the big paradigm shifts that would benefit lots of people is a shift back from tourism to pilgrimage. You, you can still go to these places, but go as a pilgrim. And that means knowing something about the place, uh, relating to its history and, and what is what the traditions of it are, and actually trying to connect with it through puja or prayer when you get there. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay, so now let's talk a little bit about, we've been talking about the science delusion, or I've mentioned it a few times. It's also called Science Set Free. Um, I prefer the science delusion simply because it's a cheeky title that obviously references the God delusion by Richard Dawkins. Um, mm. And in that book, you show the ways in which science has been constricted by assumptions that have, over the years, hardened into dogmas, as you say. Um, so can you talk about a few of those assumptions and perhaps the ones that are more obviously uh, direct obstacles to the science of spiritual practices? I suppose the most obstacle, the one that's the greatest obstacle is the doctrine that matter is unconscious. Right. And the other one is the assumption that all reality is made of unconscious matter. So materialism, which is the um, basic underlying philosophy of contemporary science, is the doctrine that only matter or physical reality is real and that it's unconscious. So the whole universe, galaxies, stars, planets, uh, and everything within it is unconscious mechanisms just working in accordance with mathematical laws um, and impersonal forces. And uh, of course that runs into the problem of the fact that humans are conscious. We ought not to be if all matter is unconscious and our brains are made of unconscious matter. So human consciousness is a terrible embarrassment for materialism. <laughs> it ought not to exist, which is why its very existence is called the hard problem. Right. And quite a number of philosophers of mind, clever materialist philosophers, have expended decades of effort in trying to prove that we're not really conscious. It's an illusion. Yeah. Uh, or an epiphenomenon. It doesn't do anything. Um, the trouble is that they don't succeed in convincing the other materialists, even or even themselves, because if consciousness is an illusion, then it doesn't explain consciousness because illusion is a mode of consciousness. So um, the materialist thing ends in, in this sort of terrible, insoluble problem of the existence of consciousness, trying to dismiss it or ignore it. Um, now, that's a big obstacle because it says that spiritual practices, which are about consciousness, after all, spirituality is all about consciousness and consciousness experience and relating to more than human forms of consciousness. Um, it says that there are no forms of consciousness beyond the human level. Therefore, all this stuff's a waste of time. Or, uh, or if it isn't a waste of time, things like meditation or 
spiritual openings through psychedelics I'll think or uh, adjust subjective experiences inside the brain to do with neurotransmitters and nerve cells and don't relate to anything out there. Yeah. Uh, so there are plenty of materialists and atheists who actually meditate now. I mean, a notable example is Sam Harris, mm. one of the new atheists. Here in Britain, Susan Blackmore is a Zen meditator and yet a prominent public atheist and materialist. So, um, I think that the, the this dogma of science, the materialist assumption, is extremely limiting for science and causes, causes havoc with philosophy of mind and also blocks off any sensible approach to consciousness studies. Luckily, consciousness studies is now emerging as an important part of science and has gone beyond the sort of stimulus response type of psychology we had in the 20th century, behaviorism. Um, and is looking at altered states of consciousness, including meditation, psychedelics, near-death experiences, mystical experiences, and so on, um, looking at the phenomenology of these phenomena. But it's in an awkward position being inside the university system because the whole university system is essentially committed to kind of secular materialism, with a few exceptions of divinity faculties, but even in religious studies, at least in Britain, more and more atheists are trying to take over and say that actually uh, atheists are the people who should be studying religions because they do it objectively. Oh my gosh. Uh, um, yes, I mean, this is a big thing in religious studies and religious education in schools, which is mandated by our, our government, um, unlike the US, um, is now dominated by a kind of materialist or humanist points of view, treating religions as kind of belief systems that people used to believe in before they knew better. Uh, but we now know that, um, you know, the science tells us the truth. It's that kind of attitude. Mm -hmm. They're not all like that, obviously, but um, this is still, this is a very common set of attitudes in the academic world. Anyway, those assumptions of science, the materialist assumptions, are very, very limiting. Those are just two of the ten assumptions I discuss. Yeah, and and so I guess the you know the obvious question then is what is sort of the alternative to the materialist worldview um, from your perspective? Is it is it something like the Vedantic or the Hindu perspective where where um, consciousness is primary and does that sort of help us solve this the hard problem of consciousness or is it something else? Well, I personally am not an idealist in the sense that I don't think that one needs to go to the opposite pole right. to deal with materialism. That one pole says it's all matter. Uh, the other pole says it's all consciousness. Because you fall into the same kind of dualism there. Well, yes, then you have a problem of uh, materialism denigrates mind and, uh, and idealism rather denigrates matter. Right. Um, so... I myself think that the um, the clue to this is what many different religious traditions have as their central understanding of reality, which is Trinitarian, threefold. Um, in the Hindu tradition, it mainly form, uh, comes out in the Sat-Chit-Ananda yes. Trinity, but it can also come out in you know the knower, the known, and the means of knowledge, or it can come out as Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva, or para shiva shiva and shakti you know there's various forms of this trinitarian model within hinduism 
Um, and you get a variant even in Taoism, which starts from quite different premises. You know, the yin and the yang are enclosed within a circle. The unifying principle includes those two interacting principles, which the, together they make up a kind of trinity. Mm. Um, so if we take that view, and um, the Christian version um, in, in the base of Chasat, uh, uh, being, uh, the ground of being, is the father in the Christian version. The Logos is Chit, it names and forms, Nama Rupa, the Logos is about forms, meanings, patterns, structure, the contents of consciousness. And the spirit is the dynamical principle, a bit like Shakti in Hinduism. Um, And so when we see all nature, um, according to modern physics, is explained not in terms of matter, I mean, in a sense, Modern physics has transcended materialism, which says matter is the fundamental reality. The fundamental realities of fields and energy. Um, so an atom, for example, it has its shape owing to the quantum fields that order the protons and, and the, um, the nucleus, the electrons. Um, the electromagnetic fields that shape its interactions with other atoms. And the energy or actuality that gives it its reality. Um, So basically, we have an interplay of energy and form, or uh, in Tantric Hinduism, Shiva, in this case, is the formative principle and Shakti. Um, um, So uh, what we see in nature is this interplay of form and energy, uh, which uh, have a common ground, and I think a reflection of this ultimate trinity. The trouble with idealism is that it tends to to have a kind of undifferentiated view of consciousness, like materialism has an undifferentiated view of matter. When we have this more nuanced Trinitarian view, then we can see how this is reflected in the material world. And I myself think that the fields of nature um, are sustained by morphic resonance. They have habits or memory built within them. This is, of course, a common idea in Eastern philosophy. You know, when I went to India, I had a hard time in England trying to argue for morphic resonance among scientific colleagues, and because they thought the whole unit of reality was governed by eternal, rather platonic mathematical laws. Even in but, India, you were running into that kind of resistance. No, I had that in England. No, in, in India, I ran into a different problem, the opposite problem. When I said, <laughs> you know, I talked, talked about morphic resonance, um, after listening for a few sentences, most of my Hindu friends and acquaintances said, oh, there is nothing new in this idea. I said, Rishis have said this thousands of years ago. I said, this is karma. This is, uh, you know, that memory, it is in nature. You know? And so, and the same with Buddhist philosophers, you know, the, the, the idea of a kind of memory in nature is deep in, in, in Hindu and Buddhist philosophy. And then the theosophists, took this up in their idea of the Akashic record. Mm-hmm. So I found the problem I had in India was not with the basic idea. They said, you know, we have known this for thousands of years. I said, well, why not try and turn it into science then? Yeah. Uh, they didn't want to do that because, you know, they didn't want to lose their jobs or question science. And, you know, they basically accepted the authority of science, but said, and I said, well, how do you deal with this? The fact that science is so limited compared with these philosophical views you believe in and then they usually came down to say well western science is still in its infancy oh, that's I thought, so interesting 
I said, well, don't you think you could help it grow up a bit? <laughs> they didn't see that as their job. Wow, that's so interesting. So on the one hand, they believed in their their the, the kind of more expansive, you know, Trinitarian worldview. And yet yes. on the other hand, they were playing the game of Western science sort of admitting its its inaccuracies in relation to this larger view, view but not you know, feeling inspired to do anything about it. No, exactly that. But, I mean, you could say the same of many Western scientists. Mm. After all, a lot of people who are scientists in the West, more in the U.S. than in Britain, are, are practicing Christians. And the Christian worldview is certainly not one of dogmatic materialism. Right. So honestly. how do they deal with that? Uh, well, the answer is they keep two separate worlds. You know, the, the idea of non-overlapping magisteria or different domains or, you know, science deals with nature religion deals with moral issues, the questions of life after death, you know, and the soul and so forth. Um, and try and keep these in separate compartments. That's been the ploy that people have used in the West ever since the 17th century. The founding fathers of modern science, including Descartes and Newton, were devout Christians um, who were certainly not trying to overthrow religion but they wanted to have a separation between these realms because then science could get on with investigating nature without rocking the boat too much. Yeah. Well, presumably, I mean, you know, part of that has to do um, with the separation between private and public, right? The, the sense that that the, the private issues of faith should be, you know, in the kind of that sort of private realm. And then in the, in the public sector, we're going to support, you know, secular views of, of reality and so on. Um, but you remark actually in one of your conversations um, with Mark Vernon about how, uh, well, one of the whole uh, talks actually conversations is about the, this, the faith of science. And, and you talk about this specifically in relation to the genome project, which you says, which you uh, say rests on, or is a very good example of this kind of faith of, of science. So can you talk a little bit about what you mean by the faith of science? Well, the thing is that materialism says that everything can be explained in terms of matter and scientific laws. Mm -hmm. But the fact is that consciousness can't and um, much of inheritance can't um, and many other things can't. Um, so what do scientists do when confronted with that situation? They say, well, we can't do it yet, but we will be able to do it in 10, 20, 30 years' time. Um, so Karl Popper, the philosopher of science, called that attitude promissory materialism, issuing promissory notes against future explanations that don't yet exist. That is, in fact, the actual position of most scientists. If you say, well, okay, if you, what is life? Explain it. And they say, oh, we don't understand it all yet. It's, we've got these molecular mechanisms, but they're so complex, the interactions, there aren't computers big enough to calculate all the interactions yet, and we need another 10, 20 years of highly expensive research before we can do this. So um, I'm so used to this that and 10 years ago, I um, tried to call the bluff of promiser and materialism. I was in a debate at Cambridge University with one of the leading proponents of materialist biology, Professor Lewis Wolpert, mm -hmm. about the nature of life. And he'd just said in, in a public statement just before our debate that, you know, very soon, given the gene genome of an unborn baby, we'll be able to predict every detail of the ensuing person and uh, predict all abnormalities. 
so I said to him, okay, Lewis, you've made this bold prediction. I said, yeah, I'll bet you a bottle of champagne that it won't happen within 10 years. And uh, he he said, well, uh, well, uh, well, maybe not 10 years. I said, okay, 20. He said, well, uh, maybe not 20. I said, how long then, Lewis? And he said, well, uh, maybe 100. I said, well, look, I said, you and I are obviously going to be long dead by then. And, and you know, this is just an act of faith. He said, no, no, this is science. And I said, no, it isn't, Lewis. It's an act of faith. Um, and um, anyway, I challenged him to a wager after the debate, and he finally agreed to it. And first he said, couldn't be humans, so he said, it have to be a mouse. And I said, okay. Within 20 years, I said, we have to have a feasible time span. Uh, you predict every detail of the mouse could be predicted from its genome. And he said, agreed. So a week later, he said, uh, Rupert, a bit of a problem with the mice. It's a bit too complicated. have to be a chick. I said, okay, chick or a mouse. Then a week later, he said, uh, we have to be a frog. I, I understand it's going to be a bit too difficult with the chick. And I said, okay, chick, mouse or frog. Then he got back to me. We were about to go to press with this in New Scientist magazine. He said, well, I, I think there's going to have to be a nematode worm. And I said, Lewis, this is a bit of a climb down to a one millimeter long nematode worm from a human being in a matter of a few weeks. And, uh, and uh, so uh, I said in the end, well, look, why don't we just say any multicellular organism? So that's how the wager stands. And we, um, we bought a case of fine port uh, paid half each. It's in the Wine Society vaults in England at the moment. Um, the closing date's May the 1st, 2029. The ten, we're now on the 10-year point, and very few people, I think, think that within 10 years from now, it'll be possible to predict every detail based on the genome, for the simple reason that genes, um, we don't know what most of them do, but the ones we do know what they do, they code for the sequence of amino acids and proteins, which gives you the materials inside an organism, but not the way they're arranged. It's like having the blueprint for the bricks or cement that goes into a building, but not the building plan. Uh, the building plan isn't there in the genome. Um, so there's no way this prediction could ever work. Um, just you can one can deduce that on first principles, but it, the thing is that there's this faith position that we can't do it now, but we will in 5, 10, 20 or an indefinite number of years. That's why I say it's an act of faith. I see. So a follow up question to that, because I think this is important because genes to me seem like, you know, our current one of our current kind of prevailing mythologies, this idea of genetic determinism and like you're saying that we can sort of predict and so essentially the problem with it is that um, if I uh, understand the science right or it, maybe you can kind of elaborate a little bit it's that the we understand the genetic material but we don't know how it will manifest is that essentially what the idea yeah. is well you know what it's made of we know the sequence of amino uh, of uh, bases nuclear uh, the base uh, the four kinds of letters, as it were, mm. in the alphabet. We know the sequence of the human genome and of many other organisms. But the problem is it doesn't actually enable you to predict what the organism would be like. It doesn't predict the shape, the form, the instincts. It only predicts uh, the sequence of amino acids in some of the proteins. Um, and sometimes there are two or three bits of gene get joined together to make a protein. Um, so it, it's not predicting most of the things you want to know. And 
as a result of the genome project people used to say we'd have all this personalized medicine and it would revolutionize everything and so on well when they'd sequenced tens of thousands of genomes uh, they tried to find out how well it predicted things like height or susceptibility to breast cancer and so forth and it turns out that instead of predicting 80 or 90 percent which is what people had expected uh, the genome only predicts five to ten percent of uh, inheritance um, and this is now called within biology the missing heritability problem uh, 80 to something like 80 percent of heritability just isn't there or 70 percent of it just isn't there um, so where is it um, so the aunt response to that is say well there must be lots and lots of tiny modifications made by hundreds of other genes we haven't yet fully identified so give us time and we'll fix this problem by doing yet more work on genomes that's the usual view yeah my view is that they'll never fix it because most of this inheritance isn't in the genome to start with it right. works morphic resonance right and so another way of saying that would be that the that gene genes are the kind of sole causal source of how development takes place yes exactly and in fact we now know that um, the epigenetics, the modification of genes, has hereditary effects over and above the genes. That was denied until about the year 2000, but now it's mainstream. And epigenetics in itself, just by itself, and that's conventional biology now, um, would predict that genes alone wouldn't enable you to predict the effects of inheritance. But epigenetics extends a kind of material basis of inheritance beyond genetics, but it still leaves a great deal unexplained. Hmm. All right, so I want to transition now a little bit. And I was mentioning before um, our conversation started or before we started recording that uh, this past weekend we had a conference uh, called The Embodied Brain, Neuroplasticity, Contemplative Practice, and the New Scientific Paradigm. Um, and it was a fascinating conference with people like Stephen Porges in attendance and others. But one thing that always strikes me is that, um, you know, while these explanations are all well and good and very interesting, I don't really need them to justify my spiritual practice. The experience of, you know, the inner trajectory of my own personal sadhana is at least to me, separate from the kind of external materialist explanations for why certain practices work. And yet, you know, across our culture, it seems you see a lot of need for people to have the scientific explanation in order to justify their practice, in order to even perhaps inspire them to begin, inspire them to begin on something like a spiritual path to begin with. And so then there is this kind of mixing of metaphors, it seems, between, you know, scientific metaphors, um, uh, to me at least, are not always appropriate to make sense of my spiritual practice. So I am I guess I'm wondering about this and, and perhaps what you think about this kind of confusion of registers or perhaps a kind of conflation of epistemological domains between the scientific and the kind of inner spiritual vocabulary. Well, I agree with you about this, um, you know, the, the, the confusion that's there. This is something I try to deal with in my book, Science and Spiritual Practices, because every one of the seven practices I discussed there has had scientific studies relevant to it. Right. And I think the science can illuminate some of these practices, um, perhaps even improve some of them. Um, but I don't think it explains them. Um, and it's not strictly necessary for most of them. It's just that in our world, 
unless there's a kind of scientific imprimatur, you know, a stamp of approval of science. Most people don't take them seriously. Yeah. Um, you know, if meditation works, people, the first question for a lot of people is, where is it happening in the brain? Um, you, you, you know, um, and then you say, okay, well, it affects the anterior cingulate cortex, the frontal temporal lobe, and they start glazing over because they're not actually, they don't know anything about brains and not very interested in all these long words. Uh, they just want to be told it affects the brain because that means it's okay. Yeah. It's scientific, got this stamp of approval. Um, um, so, I mean, the, the, you know, I found this quite often when people have asked, okay, where's the, you know, I do research on things like telepathy and, and stuff, and it, if they ask for the details, and as soon as you give the details, they actually don't want to know or, or aren't interested. Um, they, they just want to have, you know, the is it true or isn't it? Does science approve of this or not and stuff? Um, well, I mean, the main studies on meditation show that there's a decrease in the activity of the default mode network, which is that region of the brain concerned with rumination or, um, you know, the discursive mind or the chattering mind or the stream of thoughts and so on. Well, most meditators know that anyway. Yeah. A lot of money could have been saved by just, uh, you know, by just saying, well, yes, this is something we already know. Um, but it's nice in a way that the uh, brain studies fit in with it because it does show there's a relationship. I think the danger, the only danger of all this, I, don't, I think most of it's harmless, um, but I think the danger comes when people think that then it's nothing but the activity of the brain. As I look around me now in my room, I see books and objects in the room, and if someone did an fMRI scan on my brain, as I look at a book in front of me, uh, there would be characteristic changes in my brain. And if I look at a book with a blue cover, they'd be different from one with the red cover. Um, all that could be um, measured looking at the, the brain. But that doesn't prove that the book I'm looking at is nothing but my brain. Um, it shows that those changes in the brain are the interface between my experience of the book um, and my brain. And so changes that happen during meditation or other spiritual experiences um, or practices doesn't prove it's nothing but those changes in the brain um, any more than changes in the brain when you're looking at anything or listening to anything prove that that's nothing but changes in your brain and not really out there. And when I hear you speak now in our conversation, uh, there are changes in my brain, but the fact they can be measured doesn't prove that you're really not there and you're a figment of my imagination. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, that seems to be quite common, right? I mean, it's sort of like my, you hear people say things like this all the time, like my brain made me did that as if the brain has some kind of subjectivity that is prior to my own, you know, experience of consciousness. So, and, and, and you mentioned this also in your, one of your conversations with Mark, you're, you, you highlight how there is all this kind of, you know, attachment of the prefix neuro and quantum to kind of everything now. And if that if that happens or takes place or someone can attach that to a word, then all of a sudden it's achieved some sort of legitimacy. And then, you know, if someone can, you know, just show a picture of a highlighted region in the brain, that that somehow proves, you know, something is, is, has, um, 
has taken place there or, or that it's caused by that. I think that's really, it's, it's sort of a question of causality, isn't it? It's sort of caused by the brain in some way. So what, you know, I think you're already saying it, but I guess maybe a more pointed question about the brain as a mediator rather than a cause. Yes, I mean, it's clear the brain's a mediator, even in ordinary activities. You know, when you when a cat sees a mouse, you know, the brain's not the cause of its prey, its, its um, capture behavior, trying to pounce on the mouse. There's a sense in which the mouse is the cause, or the, but then even that's not the cause, it's the fact the cat's hungry, or the fact that it's excited by moving objects. That's an instinctive pattern of behavior it inherits. There's lots of things going on there, and it's not just the brain, uh, even in simple pieces of animal behavior. Yeah. So let's talk uh, a more po- uh, kind of specifically about uh, the practices in your book. So again, the science of spiritual practices, you look at seven practices and they are meditation, gratitude, relating to nature as more than the human world, relating to plants, singing and chanting, rituals and pilgrimage, which we've already talked a little bit about. So do you want to talk about a couple of these uh, practices and, and sort of what you highlight in, about them in the book? Yes, okay, well, gratitude, for example, um, this is something which has now been investigated by positive psychologists, and you know those are the branch of psychologists that are trying to find out what makes people happy, as opposed to traditional psychology, which is more about what makes people miserable. Um, So positive psychology um, is looking at what why people are happy, what works for people to make them happy. Being in a state of flow is one of the key findings. Another key finding is that when they examined lots of people who are, generally speaking, happy, they found that these happy people tend to be grateful people. Mm-hmm. Um, so then the critics said, oh, well, of course they're grateful. That's because they're happy. So they wanted to find out whether they're happy because they're grateful or grateful because they're happy. So they did a whole series of experiments, uh, giving people gratitude exercises, basically counting their blessings, as opposed to control groups that counted their hassles. And uh, the people that counted their blessings made a list of good things that had happened for which they felt grateful. Uh, Turned out to be, as a result of doing that, measurably happier for days afterwards. Um, And so what they showed is that the actual practice of gratitude makes people feel more connected, more in a state of flow, and happier. Um, And this is a very simple practice. All religions, of course, encourage gratitude. Um, um, It's a very simple practice, and you don't have to do it within a religious context. There's now... (coughs) There are now lots of self-help books on uh, gratitude. And, of course, in America, where any new idea is turned into a product within yeah. minutes. <laughs> you can buy expensive, beautifully bound gratitude journals. <laughs> um, so that's one practice. And uh, the psychological studies of gratitude fit with long traditional practice of gratitude and indeed folk wisdom. It's better to uh, count your, it's good to count your blessings. Uh, they also show that people who are grateful are not only happier, but more popular. Uh, and again, you could say that's a scientific 
seal of approval for something that's, if you think about it, it's fairly obvious. You'd rather be with someone who's grateful and, and happy than complaining all the time. Yeah. <laughs> so um, gratitude is a very simple and fundamental practice. And um, at the end of each chapter in my book, I suggest two simple exercises people can do to test these out for themselves. And with gratitude, one of them is saying grace before meals or giving thanks before meals, which in many households in America and Britain a generation or two ago was perfectly normal. Yeah. It's now in the modern secular world uh, not normal. It's, it's very exceptional to come across it, in fact. Um, in our it's quite off-putting. I mean, many people find it very off-putting. Well, they might if it's a form of words that they don't relate to. But mm -hmm. um, one, the way in which we do it at, um, in our own home, uh, we do it in different ways. But if it's just members of the family, we usually hold hands silently for a while so we can each give thanks in our own way. And oh, that works. Nice. It includes everybody. Yeah. Um, and or if there's more people, someone says a grace. I, I usually do that um, and try to do it in a way that includes everyone, you know, not specifically. Although I'm a practicing Christian, I don't make it extremely Christian centered. Um, I do make it centered on a form, you know, beyond the human realm, nature and the consciousness beyond nature. Um, or uh, one can sing a grace. And uh, we often sing a grace as a round when we have. Um, larger numbers of people. That's very, very good practice because everyone joins in. Singing together is another practice I talk about in my book. It has an instant effect on bonding groups. Um, and by the time you spend a minute or so singing a grace as a round, the whole atmosphere around the table is much more positive, cheerful and bonded. It really transforms the meal. Yeah, and this connects to the the chanting and the singing um, uh, aspect of, of of your book. And I'm curious what the science has been around that. I mean, my, my practice, for example, is is chanting, so I'm just personally interested, um, or includes chanting. So I'm personally interested in kind of the work that's been done about that. Yes, well, um, this comes from different angles. First of all, there's the people like my wife, Jill Purse, who's a pioneer of the group chanting movement, who um, investigating chants from all different traditions and showing they have common factors. And, you know, they, it, it, she in her sound and voice workshops, she teaches chanting, uh, partly from the Hindu tradition, the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, you know, the Sufi tradition, the Christian tradition, um, and Native American tradition. So there's many forms of chanting. Yeah. Um, and the so first of all, empirical research on chanting shows a lot of things they have in common. Secondly, and one thing they have in common is that chants are much simpler than songs. The, the number of notes is less, the syllables are less, the word, number of words are less. So it's, it gets one into a more meditative state through repeating things over and over again uh, than having constantly varying songs with new words in every verse. Um, and secondly, uh, physiological research shows, first of all, something is obvious. If you're chanting together in synchrony, then you're breathing together. So the whole group is breathing. And singing a hymn in church, the same is true there. If, if you know, you take a breath at the end of each line, everyone's doing it together. So a whole group comes into a kind of physiological resonance. Then research on Gregorian monks chanting together who've been doing it for years shows that 
as they do it, not only is their breathing synchronized, but also uh, other physiological measures like heartbeats tend to become more synchronized. So um, chanting has this effect on synchrony of the group when you're doing it with other people, yeah. which is a very bonding experience. And it's one reason all tribal cultures, all traditional cultures and all religions have had chanting together as part of them. Yeah. You know, in in the Hindu tradition, you know, singing bhajans or yeah. uh, kirtan, uh, where people are singing together, is uh, singing hymns, chanting psalms, um, Gregorian chant, um, it's Sufi chants at, in, 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 in Sufi shrines and so on. I mean, these are all forms of chanting uh, where the group is bonded. So you can measure that physiologically. They also, of course, affect different regions of the brain. And again, you can measure that. And people have done studies on the brains of people chanting. It's a bit harder than doing them on people meditating because to be in an fMRI machine, you've got to stay still. Right. Uh, as it were, meditators are sitting targets for scientists. And <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so are people taking psychedelics because they can stay still as well. Chanters are a bit harder to deal with because by definition, they're making their body vibrate by chanting. And, um, so the, the, there are certain technical limitations in the science here. It's harder to get those brain scan pictures showing which bits light up, but you can do this with electroencephalographs and other techniques. And again, uh, you know, people have done this, but, um, and sure enough, there are changes in the brain when you're chanting or singing. Um, and for most people, it's enough to know that's happening. It proves it's real, but for the people who actually chant and sing, <laughs> you know, it's real anyway. Um, and again, as we were discussing before, you, you know, if people who say they want to see the scientific results, you actually show them and say, well, as all these channels are activated in the EEG and stuff, they're not really very interested in the details. Yeah, yeah. So I wanted to ask you about uh, relating to plants, maybe as our, our last kind of one to explore from this book. And uh, I'm wondering if, if part of that process or that practice has to do with imbuing in your own relationship with plants, imbuing them with, with consciousness. I, I was thinking as I was uh, getting ready to ask this question about like a, a mushroom trip where you, where you sort of hug a tree and all of a sudden you're feeling its consciousness in a very palpable way. Um, and I'm not advocating any site. Well, I am advocating psychedelic <laughs> use actually, <laughs> uh, you know, under a condition, in the right conditions. Yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> So what is what is uh, what is the nature of that particular practice in relating to plants that you're speaking of? Well, um, I started out as a botanist and plants have been a big part of my life and still are. Um, and there's many ways of relating to them. I mean, gardening is one and I'm a keen gardener. So but the ones in my book, I focus on just two. One is the the relating to flowers. Um, and this raises the whole question of the nature of beauty. Because flowers are a communication between the plant world and the animal world. As Darwin said, before there was an eye to see it, there could have been no flower. So flowers are a kind of communication. Um, and the first flowers emerged maybe 100 million years ago. And they were probably interacting primarily with insects, which is what they primarily interact with today, butterflies and bees above all. Um, but when you look at the incredible beauty of the flowers and the extraordinary range of them, 
they go far beyond the call of duty in attracting butterflies and bees. And there's far much, far too much beauty to be explained in terms of simply utilitarian um, explanations. <coughs> Flowers, I think, show to us that in the world there's this vast amount of gratuitous beauty. Mm. I gave a talk recently, it's online, called Why is there so much beauty in the world? And it's not, not an easy question because all natural selection arguments, um, you know, you'd need a, plant, a flower needs to attract a bee and stuff. But you can, in experiments, if you just make crude cardboard cutout flowers painted red, they'll attract bees. Yeah, um, uh, they work. You know, put a bit of sugar in the middle, it works. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but the, the beauty and the exquisite shapes of flowers suggest that somehow underlying plant form underlying nature as a whole there's something that gives rise to beauty gratuitous beauty far more beauty than is needed for purely uh, functional means mm -hmm. the same applies to animal beauty the beauty of butterfly wings for example or of beetles iridescent beetles um, why do they have to look so beautiful i mean darwin's theory of sexual selection explains it to some extent you know the the female peahen likes the male peacock with the most beautiful tail and therefore the peacock with the most beautiful tail gets the girl mm -hmm. uh, that's the case but as darwin himself admits what gives the females the sense of beauty in the first place this just pushes it back um, so i think that contemplating flowers leads one into a whole realm of the consideration of beauty and the appreciation of beauty and the nature of beauty and the nature of beauty is to do with minds mm. uh, um, as Terence McKenna once said, you know, the point about psychedelic experiences is that um, they're made of mind, but they're not made of my mind. Um, and there's something else going on. And when you see the flowers, beauty of flowers, there's somehow mind involved in that beauty. But it's not just human minds. They were around for 100 million years before humans evolved. Um, there's something else going on. And it suggests that there's a kind of mental processes in the universe, if not in plants working through them. Um, so I'm not necessarily saying the plant is conscious of its own beauty. It may not be, uh, but it forms that and it must have formed it within the context of other minds and animal minds at the first the insects to start with. Uh, but I think other forms of mind as well in a way that to me is still mysterious. Now, in relation to trees, uh, the other aspect of plants I discuss in my chapter on relating to plants um, is doesn't necessarily involve hugging them while under the influence of mushrooms, although that's an experience that's profoundly meaningful for many people or some people, including me. Um, but um, the it, it's something to do even before or in cultures where people didn't have mushrooms or before they were rediscovered, um, there was a sense in which people related to trees, um, a sense in which trees are bigger than us, they're older than us, they're greater than us, they literally link heaven and earth through being up in the sky, they attract lightning, their roots go down into the soil. Um, and they've always appealed to people, all cultures have sacred trees. You know, India, in every village, you'll find a sacred peepal tree and a banyan tree and, an, and or a neem and a peepal planted together in a temple. 
you know, male and female trees. So uh, these are venerated. Um, in Buddhist shrines, there are peepal trees recalling the enlightenment of the Buddha. Um, in most parts of the world, there are sacred groves. When people cut down the forests for agriculture, they usually left around a holy spot or just for its own sake on a hilltop or wherever, a grove of the un untampered with vegetation as a refuge for the spirits of the land and the wildlife and the spirits of the wildlife. Um, and in India today, the greatest biodiversity is found in sacred groves surrounding temples. Mm. There was a paper in Nature last week about sacred groves in Ethiopia, tens of thousands of them around the churches of Ethiopia, where these Christian churches, ancient Christian churches, have always been surrounded by protected groves. Of, and all the indigenous species are still there. They've been wiped out elsewhere through for agriculture. So there's something about sacred groves which um, in the United States uh, still exist, but they have to be framed in modern secular terms as national parks, right. as places for recreation. Um, and um, But basically, John Muir, who founded the National Parks Music Movement, thought of them as nature's cathedrals. It was explicitly religious, his motivation. Wow. He did see them as sacred groves. So did Henry David Thoreau who had a big influence on Muir and Emerson too. Um, so I think what's happened is that we've got sacred groves everywhere, even in the even in the very secularized, desacralized United States. In fact, it's got some of the best in the world, biggest and best of the sacred groves. Um, so I think when we see trees in particular and sacred groves, uh, collections of trees or forest ecosystems, um, uh, they connect us with some kind of primal part of ourselves because our ancestors lived in forests and you know, early primates lived in trees. And um, there's something deeply primal about this that connects us uh, to something that goes back way beyond civilization. Civilization involved cutting down forests, yeah. uh, but all the old civilizations preserved sacred groves and the modern ones still do. But in Britain, when they're, preserved now they're called sites of special scientific interest <laughs> <laughs> this kind of thing is as measuring bits of the brain that light up when you're meditating unless it's got this scientific seal of approval it can't be taken seriously yeah. um, so um, we now have hundreds and thousands actually of these is in addition to the older sacred groves uh, the newer ones are SSSIs, Sites of Special Scientific Interest. Mm. And the point is that when people go to these preserved forests and groves, again, they're, as tourists, they're meant to go there just interested in facts. Yeah. But actually, people go because they have a sense of connection with nature, uh, a sense of which is deeply healing. And there have now been many studies of the effects of being immersed in nature, particularly forests, what the Japanese call forest bathing. And these have shown they low le lower levels of stress hormone, they reduce activity in the default mode network and so on. So it just going to them has already, and, and will no doubt get more, uh, received a seal of scientific approval. Yeah, wow, that's fascinating. And I'm really, I'm really actually grateful that we're um, sort of wrapping up our conversation on this note, because I think, um, you know what you said about sort of flowers inviting us toward beauty and 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 what you're mentioning about trees and forests is 
is really poignant uh, because I think a lot of times in you know in contemplative traditions of of all varieties, nature tends to get left out. Really, it's sort of like it can when even when it doesn't collapse into a kind of escapist, you know, transcending my spirit, transcending the world, which is a more you know, which is you know more obvious, more sort of problematically contrasted with a an affirmative you know nature uh, integrated um, uh, uh, intention. There's you know there's a at least there isn't this kind of relationship to plants and and animals and trees that is that at least I see very much in in often what gets transmitted as the Eastern philosophical teachings or the contemplative teachings in general. So it's it seems to be a kind of lost uh, part of this whole uh, question. Yeah, well, I agree. That's a good point to end on because I think what actually we have to see is that if you take the say the Hindu tradition in its fullness. Uh, it's not what the export version is about, which is this more attenuated personal transformation through yoga and meditation. The actual full-blooded Hinduism in India, which includes folk Hinduism, is full of sacred groves, sacred rivers, bathing in the Ganges, Surya Namaskar, the yoga practice, greeting the sun, prostrating yeah. the sun. The Gayatri Mantra is, you know, again, uh, in, asking, invoking the sun and its blessings. Um, the, the, the Hinduism is extremely engaged with nature. And of course, all those sacred animals, elephants, when you go into temples in South India that put their trunk on the top of your head to give you a blessing, then of course it swivels round to, and comes out in front of you waiting for the 10 rupee note, which uh, it then takes and hands to the mahout. But I mean, uh, all these aspects of India are extremely embodied and extremely nature-rooted. Uh, but when it's exported, distilled off in its westernized version, it loses that, but they're all there. Yeah. And in the Christian tradition too, you know, the, the tradition of pilgrimage and holy places and shrines and so on is, is very based in uh, uh, many of the old holy places, like the cave of St. Boehm in southern France, the shrine of St. Mary Magdalene, has a sacred grove around it. So all these things are there. But I think we've tended to have this rather rarefied view of spirituality. And I think we need to see it in its embodied, nature-rooted forms. Yeah, I mean, what what thing that what that I was reminded of when you were mentioning that is when I was in India um, this last February, I was um, I spent uh, some time in an ashram, and and the woman who um, was uh, sort of leading that ashram would take us to the Ganga every day and and you didn't just you know jump into the ganga you you said you chanted to the ganga and then you walked in and you made sure to be fully clothed and your shoulders were covered and and there was a, a veneration of of the river as a kind of entity and and a deity of course as they um consider it which is just totally empowers and makes meaningful and your relationship with a part of your environment that just we seem to have, you know, totally lost in, in our kind of materialist contemporary culture. Yes, I agree. So what can we expect, Rupert, from your next book? You have a sequel coming out uh, to the sciences of spiritual practices called Ways to Go Beyond. Um, so as we close our conversation today, which has been totally fascinating, um, and I'm incredibly grateful for it, um, would you just tell us a little bit about what we can expect from that next work? Well, it's already out in England, actually. Oh, okay. It came out last week. Um, so um, you, it's not published in America yet, but 
you can get it through Amazon. They import them from England. Okay. Um, well, it's seven more spiritual practices. It's a sequel to science and spiritual practices, um, ways to go beyond and why they work. Um, so the seven more practices I deal with there are sports, which oh. most people don't think of as a spiritual practice, but I think in the modern world, it's the main way in which people enter altered states of consciousness. Oh, interesting. You have to be intensely present if you're climbing a rock face or playing a football game or you know playing a good game of tennis. You, you can't have default mode network ruminating, etc. You, you, for many people, it's a much more effective and rapid way of becoming totally present than meditation is. And many people have altered states of consciousness during sports. So it's normally branded as secular, totally secular, non-religious, and so on. And yet, I think in the modern secular world, it's the main way in which people enter altered states of consciousness. Mm. Then I have a chapter on learning from animals. Um, um, again, there's many ways I think we can learn from animals. And one thing I think we can learn is that animals don't have ruminations and the same kind of activity and default mode networks that we do um, they're much more in the present a cat purring uh, is in the present a lizard basking in the sun is in the present and blackbird listening to another blackbird singing is totally in the present um, so I think one of the things we can learn from animals is that they're much more in the present than we are and many of them may have um, strong spiritual connections too. I, I think animals have a spiritual dimension as well as we, as well as us. We like to think we're better than animals, but actually in certain respects, they may be better than us. Um, um, learning from animals is a chapter. Um, then uh, there's a chapter on fasting, which is part of all uh, spiritual traditions. Um, something I do myself every year during Lent. I have a period of at least three days, sometimes seven, with only water, no, no food. Um, so, um, and again, there's been a lot of work on the physiology of fasting, and so we know a lot about it scientifically. But it also leads to changes in mind and experience. Um, excuse me. <coughs> um, so, um, uh, fasting... Um, as a spiritual practice, uh, as I say, is in all traditions, Hindu, Buddhist, Jewish, Christian, Muslim. Um, so I discuss that. I have a chapter on psychedelics. Oh, excellent. For many people in the modern world, it's on cannabis and psychedelics. And I think for many people in the modern world, uh, cannabis and psychedelics can provide spiritual openings. Yeah. I don't, they always do. Right. And I don't think taking them is always a spiritual practice. Um, but I think they can do, and I think it's important to acknowledge that because for many people who've grown up in a secular world, psychedelics or smoking cannabis are their first awareness that there's more to consciousness than they've been educated to believe yeah. and realms of experience that they didn't know about. And this opens a door. Yeah. Then I have um, a, a chapter on holy days and festivals because I think in all religious traditions, um, celebrating together and linking the life of the community to the uh, life of nature is very important. And I think that the Judeo-Christian 
practice of having a day a week when you don't work is extremely important. I mean, the Jewish people are the best at maintaining the Sabbath. Yeah. I don't just mean extreme Orthodox Jews who won't go on lifts, so at least unless the, they have automatic buttons. But I'm talking about just a lot of ordinary liberal Jewish families eat together on the eve of the Sabbath, on Friday evenings. They have create this as a special space. And Christians used to do that on Sundays, but now we're in a 24-7 culture with you know, constant social media, online marketing, shops opening, shopping malls, crammed with people on Sundays. Um, I think recovering the sense of a day in the week, at least for a technological Sabbath, and, and creating a day a week which is about not being part of the ordinary. Yes humdrum treadmill is very very important and observing the festivals yeah. uh, whatever one's tradition um, and uh, finally the chapter on uh, avoiding bad habits cultivating good habits and being kind in other words avoiding vices cultivating virtues a, a, a moral dimension to all these spiritual practices because without that without the sense that these should be benefiting others and the world around us, then they can become self-indulgent as yeah. to way of um, amusing oneself or improving oneself, uh, but without uh, doing much good for anyone else. And yeah. I, I, I do think all of them have to be within that framework. Um, so anyway, those are the practices I discuss in my second book. Excellent. I'll end with a chapter on why they work, but that's too much to go into. <laughs> Um, we'll save that one for next time, Rupert. Yes. <laughs> well, this has been a fascinating conversation, and um, I just want to point people to um, sheldrake.org, which is your website. And and as I mentioned before, the Science Set Free podcast, which Rupert does with Mark Vernon, is an incredibly excellent and fascinating uh, set of conversations. Um, Rupert, is there anything else that's taking place coming up that you'd like to share with our audience? Well, I should mention the book Science and Spiritual Practices, which is now available in North America, in the US and Canada. Um, and that uh, really goes, it's an audio book as well, and an e-book, of course. Um, one thing I might mention is that coming away up in end of July, beginning of August, I do one workshop a year in North America, and I do it with my two sons. Oh, um, it's called Science and Spiritual Practices. Is at Hollyhock on Cortez Island, British Columbia, a remote and beautiful island. So I mentioned that in case anyone's listening who comes from Western US or Canada or who would like to go somewhere amazing. Um, that's one of the highlights of the year for me doing this workshop with my sons. And one of them, Cosmo, is a musician. His, if anyone's listening or if you've seen the recent iPhone ad, it's called a color flood with a lot of people running out in colored boiler suits. The soundtrack is one of Cosmo's songs. Oh, wow. Uh, he was number one on viral Spotify last week in the amazing. U.S. Amazing. Um, so that is amazing. And um, Merlin, my other son, is a Ph.D. in tropical ecology. Um, he worked on mycorrhizae, the wood wide web in the forests of Central America. So he's got a very ecological take on things so anyway the three of us will be doing this workshop together end of july beginning of august four days on a remote and beautiful island in british columbia 
Well, that's amazing. And I, I'm actually going to be, I grew up outside of Seattle, which is not too far from there. And oh. um, I'm going to probably be there around that time of year. So I'm going to look that up myself, actually. Well, check it out. I mean, the Hollyhock, uh, just before that, my wife, Jill Purse, is doing one of her family constellation workshops, which is amazing. So if you're going all that way, you might want to stay a bit longer. So Absolutely. There's right. a link. There's a link from the schedule on my website to give the details. Yes, and your website is a fantastic resource. I mean, I don't know if someone's done that for you, if you've done it yourself, but really everything on there, it really is very comprehensive. Um, your articles, books, information about the TED debate, which we didn't get to talk about, but um, I thought was super fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, all the 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 um the shit stirring that's been that that you do, which is so uh, amazing. <laughs> now I don't claim credit. The web I have a webmaster who lives in Colorado, actually, Sebastian oh, Penn. Okay. And he does, he's brilliant. He does it all for me. I mean, the content, of course, comes from me, but yes. the organization of it all comes from him. Yeah, it's excellent. It's excellent. So, uh, sheldrake.org, and I've been see speaking to Rupert Sheldrake, author of The Science of Spiritual Practices. Thank you so much, Rupert. It's been a great pleasure.